Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cast It Into the Fire podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Sherry. And we are back to Redwall. Um, this is chapter six of book three, part three of Redwall, the first book. Since uh, Brian chose to write it in this confusing format in the first book. Um, glad he changed that for the rest. Well, anyway, as we left off, Clooney and the rats had tried to do their siege tower against the abbey walls, and Cornflower had panicked and thrown a lantern at it, which had caused the tower to catch on fire and had foiled that attack. So, on to chapter six. Um, we're back with Matthias and Logalog, and... At the quarry. At the quarry, and if if you remember, Gelsum had fallen into a hole at, um, that had a sort of a rock door at it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there was no sign or sound of Gelsum. Uh, they, not wanting to disturb the snake had called her name in loud whispers and um, this is a long dark tunnel and it's sloping down you know exactly the sort of thing you might not want to go into unless you're particularly adventurous uh. now they do decide that they have to go in and uh, log log thinking ahead uh, says, wait, um, and Logalog takes a small boulder and jams the entrance slab from swinging shut. They wanted to make sure they had a, an exit, and they didn't honestly know how easy it would be to open it from the inside. Well, I've done the same kind of thing when I was working a job that had a door that would close and lock itself. And we'll put a bucket in the way, and you can go in and out while yeah. working, yeah. So, anyhow, that's what they do, and they venture um, into the tunnel. Um, and once they get to the bottom of that tunnel, um, the floor has leveled out more, and they're, they can see a bit better in the gloom. And they're able to walk side, side by side. Although also, I would think that a mouse and a shrew would have better darkness vision than a person would. I don't know if Redwall ever had this in mind, but... Yeah, I, I can't imagine, unless there's some bioluminescence type Which thing going on... he has repeatedly written bioluminescence in his caves. But, and we'll come to that in a little bit, but... You know, for the average person, as opposed to mouse or shrew or whatever. You're not seeing your hand in front of your you're face. You're not seeing your <laughs> hand. I've, I've been in caves, and I've been in caves, large caves, with the lights out. Yeah. I think we had this discussion back when we did The Hobbit. Yeah. So if you have listened to our Hobbit ones, yeah, it's dark. You can't see anything. I've been in Carlsbad Caverns. We've been in Longhorn Cavern in Texas, and 
Yeah, they shut the lights out in Which Longhorn is Cavern. Well worth the visit if you're in that area. Yeah, it's in the hill country of Texas. It's a great place to visit. Uh, though I promised myself when they shut the lights out that if I went back in again, I would have a flashlight in my pocket just in case. Not that I would disturb everybody else's darkness, but just in case. I've never seen a snake in there, but I have seen bats. Oh, there are bats, yeah. Um, and it's not been fully explored yet. There probably are snakes somewhere. Possibly. But I don't think there's so much in the area where the tours go through. Right. Anyhow, a little plug for Longhorn there. But, uh... Now, the, some of these, uh, the, the tunnel that they're going through is not actually dug out by the mice excavating. It's natural, so I think, like, water dripping or, um, some, you know, flow of water or something in the past would make that. And they're seeing symbols and signs that are scraped into the surface of the stone, and... Um, they think that this has been the lair of generations of snakes, and most of the signs were reptilian-looking. Uh, I'm not sure how the snakes would be scraping these things without hands, but... Well, who's to say the snakes made them? It could be others uh, who knew of the snakes like, don't, made them. Don't come here, snakes live here. Yeah. Uh, so, anyhow... Anyhow, they kept going, and they pressed onwards until the passage broadened out to a small chamber with two more tunnels leading from it. And they decided, okay, well, you know, we've got to split up now. And so Matthias uh, told Logalog to take the left tunnel and that Matthias would take the right tunnel and that they should mark arrows on the wall every so often uh, so you know they would not get lost and they would be able to find their way back and should you find Asmodeus come straight back to this chamber and if he finds you then the best thing to do is run as fast as you can and shout like mad and so they they go their separate ways and Matthias is holding his dagger all the time. And he goes in the right-hand tunnel. And the sand... It's narrower, and the sandstone is actually getting softer. So it's not as solidified into rock. It compares it to damp sand. Now, once again, Mom's a bit more the geology person, but sandstone, is, I think, wasn't really your thing either, so... No, but... Uh, it probably does have a stage like that. Yeah. And, you know, good for drawing an arrow into with a knife if you're just a mouse. And also, I doubt too much that they were the much of a geologist either. So, was it entirely sandstone? Um, when I was a girl, I was in a cave was something that I was told it was called Poslin. And it was actually very much like chalk. And as a child, we used it as chalk. My, my family would go into this cave and get a cardboard box, like a tomato box size thing, full of Poslin. And we'd take it home 
and we'd use it on the chalkboard. And porcelain was actually made up of tiny ocean creatures. Oh, it's a sedimentary rock. Yeah, and um, it was also used as a component of concrete. And so this mine, you know, was used in making concrete for, well, I, I know my dad was working on a dam being built, so I imagine it was used at the dam. But uh, anyhow. Um, Matthias finds a chamber and he looks into it and he finds it is full of cast off snake skins all over the floor dried out and we both think that these are shed skins yeah and it had been a snake's den long before it had been a quarry and a lot of snakes had used it and there were even more older more primitive symbols carved in anyhow as he continued back down that passage um he the passage ended up in a great cavern that um it says look the entire great hall of red wall would have fitted into just a corner of it and there's a lake in the middle big lake shimmering with a pale phosphorescent light so there's your lighting there's your lighting and you have water dripping from the roof. Kind of the kind of place Smeagol might have. Uh... Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and anyhow, Matthias noticed that there were numerous other caverns and tunnels leading from the large cave. And then he hears the hiss, Asmodeus. And yeah, he's scared. He doesn't know which of those tunnels it is coming from. And the hiss, uh, Asmodeus continues, Asmodeus, Asmodeus, and, you know, it could be in any one of those tunnels. But, but, uh, Matthias reasoned that Asmodeus may be near, but Asmodeus doesn't see him because if he did, then Matthias would have, his journey would have ended right then and there. Um, so, and then he sees Gaussim seated with her back against the wall near the water. Well, in, in one of the side caves. And he runs over to Gaussim and, um, she falls over and he realizes that she is dead. The snake already got her. And it's really pretty gruesome how it describes the effects of the venom on her face and the fang marks on her chest. Now, I've already kind of discussed this with um, back when Ragir died. Yeah. But when a venomous snake kills something that's like the size of animal it would eat, it would not normally have these kind of gruesome effects. It would just have fang marks and be dead. Those kind of effects are more when a person or a larger animal gets bitten and actually lives longer and has time for that kind of effects to happen. Right. 
Um, and adders, you, you don't want to be bitten by one. There have been rare human fatalities. But as far as venomous snakes go, for a person, they're on the lower end of the scale for toxicity. Yeah. Anyhow, um... Matthias is, of course, horrified to find Galsim like this. And he stumbles out of the larder that um, he found her in in shock. And he sat for a while, shuddering with horror what he'd seen, hardly believing that the still body had been a warm, living, breathing creature not long ago. And he forced himself to rise and carry on. So he continued his explorations. The next entrance was a tiny hole in the wall, scarcely worth bothering about. Nevertheless, he tried to investigate it. And it was so tiny he had to crouch on all fours and, you know, climb in there like a real mouse. Um. So, in the scheme of things, yes, it was a tiny, tiny hole. Um... But he began forcing his way along its narrow length. And the hissing is getting closer. closer. And when he gets the end, he is right face to face with Asmodeus, who is asleep. Yes, fortunately asleep. And um, so he's hissing and flickering his tongue out and saying his name in his sleep. And the eyes were not shut, but filmed over in sleep. Which is semi-accurate. Snakes do not have eyelids, so when they sleep, they kind of just zone out. They don't close their eyes. They don't film it over, really, but right. they do definitely sleep with their eyes open. They have no choice in that. Anyhow, um, so it was coiled in, an, in no recognizable pattern... Odd intervals, the immense coils would shift lazily with a dry, scaly rustle. The head, however, remained fixed in the same position. So, he's not as deeply asleep as he could be. And given that snakes smell with their tongues, he can probably smell Matthias a little bit. Yeah. But, would it smell much different than Gaussum? Yeah. Okay. Mice and shrews do not have the same kind of smell. I just wonder what, how much a snake can tell the difference. A snake can probably tell the difference pretty well. Okay. But Anyhow, both would register as food. The, <laughs> there were other things in the lair of the snake. A fox's tail, a wood pigeon wings, the head of a big fish, and fur pelts of many species of creatures. And that's another how exactly does that work? Because the snake doesn't have hands to be skinning. skinning them. So would he have taken the pelts from somebody else who was collecting them? Or are we supposed to have a bit of suspension of disbelief and be like, yes, somehow he beheaded that fish and skinned and tanned all these creatures? And Yeah. Doesn't sound realistic for a snake. We both uh, cared for snakes over many, many years, and uh, 
fur-bearing animals tend to get swallowed, including the fur. So, anyhow. Um, and then, on the fork of a tree root at the back of Asmodeus's den, there is the sword that he came for. And it's got a red pommel stone and a handle of black leather and silver, and it matches the belt and the scabbard. And it's... So, Asmodeus hung it up? That's more believable than the rest. Like, I guess he could kind of pick it up with his tail and... Oh, I saw that and I was thinking, okay. (laughs) Well, your average snake would not be hauling a sword to its lair either. Your average mouse wouldn't be using a sword either, so there we go. Yeah, we're we're in Redwall. Uh, so yeah, the sword, it's got a heavy silver cross piece and it's made from the finest steel with double edges tapered to a ruthlessly sharp tip and down the center of the blade a blood channel and either side of it were symbols which Matthias could not make out. He this was truly the sword of Redwall Abbey. And Brian really likes to get into it when describing the sword, I, I've noticed. Yep. And Matthias says he's going to go for it, and so he's stealthily trying to sneak past the snake and kind of flattening himself against the wall to get by the head. I think that um, Jake's, you know, with the with the eyes... Um, was actually I think in his mind describing something that actually does have an inner eye, outer eye lid. Oh yes, frogs, alligators yeah. they have a a membrane that's not quite opaque but it covers their eye while they're sleeping or if they think something's going to poke them in the eye and this is separate from like the regular eyelid because um, as Martin is, you know, squeezing closer to the wall, you know, trying to get past sleeping Asmodeus. The snake blinks, sending the opaque tissue upwards. Yes, that's a thing with alligators. It's a thing with frogs, but not snakes. Yeah. So, in the case of the frog, um, it doesn't really have eyelid eyelids. It's just got the, the opaque film... And it kind of pulls its eyes down into its head while it sleeps. And um, some geckos have a film also that they can kind of pull part of the way. So it's it's a reptile thing, just not a snake thing. And, oh, the tongue actually almost touches Matthias's face as it's going in and out of his mouth. And... Yeah, Matthias actually manages to get past the snake, and he lifts the sword down, and um, he actually, he feels he was born for this moment, and it the sword is part of him. He, he takes it down, and then, you know, he's got to get past the snake again. And he thinks if he tries to hit Asmodeus with the sword now he's probably going to be crushed to death by the snake's coils even as it's dying 
because he, he was really in a very confined space. So he, he needed to get out of there. Um, he decided the hole he had come through was obviously too small for the adder to use for the same purpose. It served as a breathing hole for Asmodeus. Also an amplification to echo the dreaded name through the caves and tunnels as a warning to intruders. But near the snake's tail, which lay directly across his path, he saw skins and pelts on the cave wall trembling slightly. And he figured, rightly so, that they were covering the only possible entrance and exit for Asmodeus, since, you know, it had such enormous girth. So he tickled the tail lightly with the sword point and it had the desired effect of the snake changing position in its sleep. And he quickly slipped through the curtain of skins and into the passage. And then Log-a-Log comes... No, he gets, has to get back to the main cavern before Log-a-Log... Uh, yeah, so he gets to the main cavern, and then Logalog comes out in a complete panic, um, shouting that he's found Galsim and she's dead, and he just keeps shouting, and that wakes up Asmodeus at the end of the so tunnel. So all of their being very quiet, uh, yeah, Logalog in his panic, uh... He messes that up. Messes that up. Panic and grief. And that is the end of chapter 6. We are on to chapter 7. We're back with um, the Abbey creatures. They're looking to Constance for guidance. So she is making the decisions about their defense. And Jess and Winifred and Basil had um, just spoken with her and told her that Clooney's tunnel, you know that the tunnelers would emerge around mid-afternoon and they, uh, the moles had actually put like stakes in the ground to mark both sides of the tunnel because uh, they could tell and actually they could hear you know talking and what the, t what the talking was uh, by listening to the ground so anyhow they were preparing the best they could for, you know, the inevitable, uh... Rat invasion. Invasion, uh, to happen. And, um... So, Clooney, meanwhile, was still acting strangely. He sat in his patched up tent on the far side of the meadow and um, Kilconi you know went to him with the news that the tunnel was almost ready and Clooney just sat and stared at the ground he, he, he didn't seem to be moved at all by what uh, he had been told and so the ferret awkwardly 
awaiting orders and he repeated what he was there for one more time and said it's the tunnel chief we'll have it ready by this afternoon and the ward ward looked up blankly oh yes the tunnel we'll carry on er you know what to do i've got things to think about he muttered absently so outside in the meadow fangburn and darkclaw listened in disbelief to the ferret i tell you he's off his rocker said kilconey anyhow um they decided that uh we've got the whole horde ready to go through that there tunnel and take the abbey what are we supposed to do and uh darkclaw said the only thing we can do we've got to carry on through ourselves well the chief's not well and fangburn said darkclaw's right the three of us will take charge of the whole business and this is a recurring redwall theme in this book and jake's later books of the main villain as the story progresses having uh, decreasing sanity decreasing sleep quality um so anyhow um they decide to just you know carry on and to not let any of the others know the condition of um Clooney so so they they go to check out their tunnel which is described as long dark and smelly and well despite it being a new tunnel if you've ever actually been around the ferrets, they are stinky creatures. Even fresh out of a bath, they kind of... I would guess a lot of the smell came from the critters themselves. Yeah. Um, they have decided that the ground is hard enough, they don't need any shoring, which I don't think is necessarily a good move, but be that as it may. Well... They did use some shoring in some places, but then uh, they basically ran out of good wood, decent timber, so they reckoned, you know, they'd be through the tunnel so fast that, you know, there wouldn't be I any problems. I think the digging is not, not quite mole quality, but decent as far as... yeah. And while this is happening, the moles have figured out the exact way the ferret tunnel is going, and they've marked it out with two lines of cord and pegs. So basically it would look like a a path uh, with the cords and pegs on each side of the path on the above ground, except for nobody's going to walk on that path right now. Um... And besides that, where they figured the the cave or the tunnel would come out to, you know, the where they'd break ground, right next to that they had two oversized cauldrons of boiling water stood ready on tripods and slow fires burning beneath them to keep it to, you know, high in temperature. I think you can see where this is going. I know where this is going, because I read it. (laughs) 
Well, we both. Read it or not, I think you can see where this is going. Right. And the ranks of the horde are actually forming up in the ditch to um, get ready for when it breaks through, so they can invade. And the other red wallers were lined up along the outside of uh, these uh, two lines of cord and pegs uh, and they they were just waiting on the command to, you know, do what they were supposed to do. So, you know, they do that, but... Uh, And Dark Claw and Kilconey are, you know, getting their fighters ready to invade as soon as it gets. They come up inside the Abbey grounds, and trying to motivate their horde with, you know, they'll get good plunder if they're good fighters. And Clooney is sleeping in his tent having nightmares about a grim avenger with the sword and the shades of creatures that he had killed were coming back to mock him and he tripped and fell and each time he'd try to get up um, the warrior with the sword would be behind him just walking his way and he was seeing the ghosts of his um captains who had died, Skullface, Red Tooth, Raggy, and Cheese Thief. And they would be telling him to turn back and face the warrior mouse, but he didn't. He kept running away. So there you go, a typical Redwall villain uh, nightmare. Anyhow, this is when two weasel diggers thrust upwards in the narrow confines of the tunnel and they sprang aside as earth showered down and daylight poured in so they'd broken through and dark claw stepped up with the to the waiting diggers they boosted him upwards he grabbed at the grass and his spear tucked under one claw he stopped suddenly his body halfway out of the hole and of course the first thing he saw was two huddled crowds of small creatures standing on either side of the double line of pegs and rope and he he grinned wolfishly he thinks they're they're playing some kind of game silly little country game and he caught them unarmed and then a noise from behind distracted him and he swiveled to turn around and he found himself facing the two huge cauldrons which bubbled and simmered ominously over twin fires. And the big badger and another strange-looking creature equally well-built was I think that's the beaver. Right. Uh, Anyhow, he set his claws against the ground to lever his body out of the hole. Before he could do anything to stop them, the badger and her companion tipped the bulky pots over. He didn't even get a chance to scream out a death cry. The boiling water cascaded down over his head and, you know, continued on into the tunnel. Endless gallons of scalding water 
uh, turned the tunnel into a hellish tidal wave and the tightly packed rodents were instantly slain. This, I would say this is probably, um, I, I understand it was in, it was in self-defense, defense of the Abbey. This is probably one of the most brutal deaths there is in the entire Red Wall series. Um, you know, being in the tunnel with the boiling water. Yeah. And, you know, the, the rats sort of, of course, would be like panicking and trying to get out. It, it would have been horrific. Now, back at, um, let's see. Yeah, Constance has the, the, the defenders jumping in the space between the two lines of rope. So they're all like, one, two, jump, two, three, jump, two, three, jump, two, three. And because there wasn't much earth between the, the surface and the top of the tunnel... Uh, it didn't take much for the tunnel to collapse. Which would make the tunnel unusable for further trying to get through it. Would have killed even more rats that are inside the tunnel. And um, after this happened, four mole and the other moles blocked off the hole with rocks and rubble so they really couldn't use it to get and in. And what, what had been a tunnel now was... Um, a mass grave of the enemy. So. And on the outside of the tunnel, the other, they uh, don't know what's happened yet. Fangburn and Kilcony oh, haven't gone inside, tunnel, yes. yes. And well, rats and weasels and ferrets and stoats are panicking and getting out of the hole, and Fangburn and Kilcony don't actually know what's happening. They're like, well, get back in there. Where, where are you going? And Kilcone looks into the tunnel and actually sees the body of a stoat being uh, pushed outward on the hot water. The boiling wave of ooze. Yeah. And Kilcone jumps back and the shoring bursts and the whole thing caves in. And... During Clooney's uh, nightmare as he continues to sleep, another figure comes and it's covered in dark steaming something and it reaches out his arms toward him and moans, Chief, it's me, Darkclaw, look what they did to me. And Kilcone and Fangburn are outside of Clooney's tent and they're debating over who gets to go in first and tell Clooney what happened. And of course, neither wants to because they know what Clooney's like and they don't want to get blamed. You know, they you dug the tunnel, you go in first. No, I'm a ferret. You're a naturally superior rat. You'd go, you better go first. Shall we go together then? Better not. It looks like the chief's asleep. He might not thank us for waking him up out of a nice dream. Aye, that's true. Let's leave it to later. Oh, the sarcasm from uh, Brian there. Mm-hmm. Um, I will note that in the TV series adaptation, it wasn't boiling water. It was hot porridge with the same result. 
Clooney saw it happen. They defeated me with porridge. Heads will roll. <laughs> that is the end of chapter seven. On to chapter eight, and oh, there's a actually pretty good drawing of an adder sticking its head out of the hole, and it's pretty accurate. The fangs are a little not quite viper style, but yeah, it's yeah. it's a good drawing. And Asmodeus's eyes are glaring through the narrow hole in front of him, and two creatures are standing in the big cavern, a shrew and a mouse, and they're holding his own beautiful sword. And he just bunches himself up and shoots through the opening that's all hung with pelts and bears his fangs. And no mouse is going to steal his sword. And meanwhile, Matthias seizes the frightened shrew, you know, log-a-log, and uh, pulls him along in a swift run. Because Asmodeus must know we're here by now. Come on, Logalog. Let's get out of this place quick. They hurry down the nearest opening and immediately spin around and are racing back because Asmodeus was in the passage sliding towards them. And they try another big cavern. They try another small tunnel and um, Asmodeus is still chasing them but not fast and I'll say even if he was chasing them fast a mouse or a shrew on open ground can outrun a snake but this isn't open ground they're lost in a cave the snake knows it and they don't that's right and Asmodeus knows that and he's like no hurry now they are not going anywhere and with a cry of dismay, they realize they just got wall ahead, then they have run into a dead end. Yep, they had, they had entered a cul-de-sac. And Logalog just um, stops with his teeth chattering, and you know, they're trapped. Matthias runs all the way to the dead end anyway, and says, there's got to be a way out, you know, get hold of yourself, and... Asmodeus pokes his uh, head into the entrance, and Logalog has gone totally rigid with fright, and Matthias is trying to dig into the wall with the sword point, and he hits a tree root but keeps digging around it, and luckily this is the soft, not fully formed sandstone, so it's actually breaking with the sword, digging at it. Anyhow, he's succeeded in clearing some around the root to the point where there there is a, a spot to crawl into, and he grabs log a log and shook him soundly. You know, here, Shrew, you're smaller than I am. Climb through. Then see if you can tug me backwards by my feet. Come on, move yourself if you want to live. And Logalog came out of his trance 
and leaping quickly into the hole and he's he scratched the damp sand grit left and right ducking beneath the tree root he scrambled awkwardly through into into a tiny cell-like space on the other side now asmodeus was close to matthias now wielding the sword the young mouse backed off he felt the hole behind him and scrambled into it sideways still facing his enemy taking care not to let the sword point drop he shouted to his companion log log can you see my feet grab a hold of them pull me through matthias hung uncomfortably and he's actually he's holding the sword out and trying to move it so it's following the snake's head so there's always the sword point between him and the snake and that's when Logalog actually does get hold of his feet and start to pull him through and he tells Asmodeus stay back evil one or I'll kill you and Asmodeus hisses back, Come to me, little mouse. Let me wrap myself around you. I will give you the kiss of eternal sleep. See, Asmodeus, he's got to be so goth about, you know, eating rodents like he does. Anyhow, um, with a triumphant shout, triumphant shout, um, Matthias disappeared completely into the hole and he fell on top of Logalog at the other side. And forcefully the snake launched his great body into the opening, crumbling earth and rock as he pushed his coils through the aperture. He's coming, Logalog screamed in terror. And Matthias shoved Logalog behind him and said, stay out of my way, Shrew. There's no more retreating. All ends here. And Asmodeus tries to um, force his entire body through the little hole they went through, but he he couldn't actually fit his bunched coils through there because of the tree root, so he just gets just his head through and you know waves it from side to side, and he tells Matthias he sees that he's a warrior. He's not afraid to look into his eyes and look at me. And Matthias sees that the eyes are seeming to expand and dilate and they fill all of Matthias's vision and he starts to become hypnotized and helpless. See, they are the twin pools of eternity. Sink into them and you will find darkness and rest. Like I said, this... Asmodeus have to do that every time he's going to eat someone? I don't know. Well, this is a bit special. They're also stealing his sword. He's, he's got his sword, seriously. Uh. And I doubt too many creatures uh, that Asmodeus eats actually were in his lair to start with. They were probably out in, in uh, moss flower or something and... Uh, Asmodeus. And as likely as um, not, they never see him before. Right. And Logalog is also totally hypnotized by the eyes, and Matthias is very nearly fully hypnotized. Um, 
his eyes are starting to his eyelids are starting to droop from this um the adder's voice is described as a cold dark green velvet fog that threatened to envelop him Whoa. yeah anyhow um martin the warrior st- strode boldly through the dark mist I am the is, Matthias. Why do you sleep? There is a warrior's work to be done here. Pick up your sword, Matthias. The evil one shall not have it. Strike out for me now, my brave young champion. And Matthias... um, He basically had a vision. He had a vision that partially snapped him out of it. And... um, Matthias um, forms the word strike. And... He snaps all the way out of the um, snake hypnotism, opens his eyes, and struck at the giant adder. He struck for Redwall, he struck against Evil, he struck for Martin, he struck for Logalog and his shrews, he struck for dead Gaussim, he struck as Methuselah would have wanted him to, he struck against Clooney the Scourge and Tyranny, he struck out against Captain Snow's ridicule. He struck for the world of light and freedom. He struck until his paws ached and the sword fell from them. Um, I took that as he, he... He was whacking Asmodeus again and again with it. Yeah. And Logalog woke up from his trance and he saw Matthias who is shaking and he's got the sword... His paws are... By his side, the sword is um, laying against his habit, and there's blood on the blade, and Asmodeus's head is on the ground, its eyes dulled in death. Never again to hypnotize another living creature, and thus ends chapter 8. So, chapter 9, Matthias... And the shrews are <coughs> march into the farmyard. Um, the entire plot in the show where they get lost after killing Asmodeus and um, find all those snake skeletons and have to use the sword spinning to point their direction. None of that happened. Yeah. It's the sort of thing that would happen in one of his books, but it did not happen. But anyhow, Matthias tells Logalog, who he's, you know, right beside, uh, wait here, my friend, there's someone I have to see. And the mouse goes into the gloom of the barn, and of course you probably remember that uh, it's a Julian the cat is in the barn. So, uh... And he... Julian welcomes him and asks about the sword. And Matthias um, holds the sword out for him to see and says it is the sword. Asmodeus lies dead. He slew Asmodeus with the weapon and it's the great sword of Martin the Warrior. And Ginger... Squire Julian Gingerbeer, he takes the sword and he sets it down on a hay bale and 
tells Matthias he'll give him some advice and he's older and he's seen more of life and there's not a lot of illusions left to him and he doesn't want to you know ruin Matthias's dreams or ambitions but he's got to say this he says that the squires of Gingivere are an ancient line which is in fact true as you'll see in subsequent and mm-hmm. a subsequent book and he's seen in the past a lot of this of tokens like that weapon and his grandsires owned a vast armory full of magnificent and valued battle equipment and the sword is beautiful it was a tribute to whoever forged it and there are very few swords like this left in the world but it is only a sword it doesn't have any spell it doesn't have any magic it's made for only one purpose to kill and it can be used for good or evil as the one who wields it and he intends to use it for the good of the Abbey, but he should never allow himself to be tempted into using it careless or idle, and it would inevitably cost him his life or that of his dear ones. And... So he told him to use it. Oh, he... Okay. Um... said, Martin the Warrior used the sword only for right and good, and this is why it has become a symbol of power for Redwall. Knowledge is gained through wisdom, my friend. Use the sword wisely. Now notice, Gingevere knew who Martin the Warrior was a bit more than Matthias explained. And, you know, once again, in a subsequent book, there is actually a reason why his family would know about this. Yeah. Um, now, regarding all this stuff about no, it's not magic, it is good advice. It is, you know, the right advice. But the way the sword is actually treated in this series is kind of contradictory to yeah. it supposedly having no magic. Right. Um, it, it seems that Martin's spirit is attached to it in some way, much like the tapestry. Right. It's got like, animals with almost no fighting skill pick it up and suddenly they're a champion. Mm. Uh, if... Oh, go ahead. If a character that is evil gets a hold of it, it tends... They may be capable of doing... Of using it for evil, but it tends to... They don't keep the sword and live long after doing that. Right. So, like, it's not magic, but kind of it is. And, yes, even when it was forged, it was forged in a pretty, like, ritualistic kind of way. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't necessarily mean that it is magic, but... Well, Matthias thanked Julian and said, I will remember remember your lesson well, but I have to ask a favor of you. Would you come with me? I want you to be present when I speak to Captain Snow. And the cat sniffed disdainfully. You ask quite a lot. I wouldn't do this for anyone else, you know. And reluctantly... Julian stalked out into the sunlight from the barn and of course the uh, regiment of guerrilla shrews is outside and there was loud frightened chatter from them and Squire Gingivere merely nodded and addressed them in a regal but distant manner 
Good afternoon. Very clement weather for this time of year, don't you think? So, you know, kind of talking about the weather is just kind of, you know, what else is new? I'm coming out of the barn and, you know, nothing to worry about. Um, that left the shrews in slaw-jawed, slack-jawed silence. And Julian is, he says, you know, Matthias, do I, you're asking a bit too much of me. I don't want to listen to the owl is a befeathered regimental boar. And he's got hidebound militaristic views. It's too much. And Matthias um, says, you know, come on, Julian. He thinks he'll be pleasantly surprised. And, oh, the cat stifled a yawn and says, you don't say. Has another tree fallen upon the pompous old fool? So that's what would pleasantly surprise Julian. Captain Snow is... Pacing around the base of the tree his nest is in. He's glaring at the cat and at the mouse who's got the sword. And he's not happy to see either of them. He doesn't want to hear how um, Matthias got the sword. And he said he probably wouldn't believe him anyhow. But here you are, and I suppose that's that. And Matthias, he tapped his foot to mock impatience. I'm waiting, Captain Snow, sir. Remember your promises on oath? The owl's eyes bulged with ill temper. He flung Basil's medal to the young, at the young mouse's feet. There, take your medal back, you insolent little pup. I'm not saying another word while this salad-eating cat is within hearing range. And Matthias says that he, that he's got an entire regiment of shrews that are hit, hidden about and they're waiting to hear him honor his wager. And the owl folds it. He spreads his wings and f- flies up to the edge of his den and, and he folds his wings and shuts his eyes tightly and shouts out with bad grace, I promise never to kill or eat another mouse or shrew of any type as long as I live so there... And he hooted and vanished back into his den. And the shrews all come out from hiding and they're dancing and whooping with delight. And Snow Snow pops back out again, (laughs) very irritated by this. Be gone, go away, I can't stand it. All those little dinners dancing around, it's too much, I tell you. And Matthias uh, reminds him of, he also had a promise regarding the cat. And he's, you know, really grouchy and humiliated now and calls out to the cat, it's all my fault, I apologize to you, Squire Julian. And the cat replies, you know, not at all, my dear friend, it is I that must apologize to you. The whole incident was entirely due to my priggishness and lack of manners. And the owl flies back down, perches next to the cat, and um, says, you know, 
he must share the blame too. It was his barrack room feeding habits that started the whole thing. Wasn't blame himself, old friend. Uh, and the cat smiles and they say they'll share the blame 50-50 and that problem's not going to come up anymore now that he's given up eating mice and shrews and invites him over to have a fresh trout salad with mustard and cress and trout's not exactly a vegetable, is it? So they you know, go arm in arm a wing wing and paw they go off to the barn and chatting as if there had never been a problem. And Julian, before he goes back into the barn, he says to Matthias, you know, who knows, my friend, maybe the sword does possess some magic. Personally, I think it's the warrior who wields it. And you know, Matthias feels good after all that's you know, happened, all the travel, and he, he feels reborn and... He's got newfound self-confidence, and he feels he can handle the difficulties and hard tasks ahead of him. He got his sword, and he's laughing freely, and so are the shrews. And it set the countryside ringing from river to woods to farm and field with the happy sounds of their honest joy. And that's how we conclude chapter 9. You know, the owl never promised not to eat rats. He did, that's right. Mice and shrews were, were it. Um, anyhow, we, we are back to Clooney. Uh, chapter 10. Yep. And he emerges from his ragged tent in the meadow, and he was far from being sick in the head. I don't know about that. Well, that's what it says. Back to his normal sick in the head Clooney instead of his more sick in the head or less sick in the head Clooney or something. And he's got the glint back in his one eye, and his orders are crisp and concise, and his long tail had a fresh crack about it. Now, after the tunnel disaster, Clooney had called off the attack for the day and had all of his followers well back across the meadow. And he let them recuperate from the fiasco, a whole day's leisure with no recriminations and hardly any orders. Which I'm sure, you know, raised the morale a bit with the rats. And this gave uh, the captains of Redwall a chance to start repairs on the gatehouse door, and they sent teams of uh, woodland carpenters and smiths and laborers over in baskets over the wall and lowered them down to, uh, you know, do work on the door. And Clooney's watching them from a distance and talking to himself. Good work, my strength in my gates. I wouldn't want to rule a fortress with broken doors. And Fangburn, in passing, overheard what Clooney had said, but not sure whether the remarks were addressed to him. He stopped and said, Er, are you feeling all right, Chief? 
never better. And he points at the mice and says, uh, this is honest and justice work. See that, Fangburn? And what's it for? Keep us out? No, to stop us getting in. And he instructs Fangburn to get some soldiers and to light a fire in the ditch and make it a make it a proper good and hot blaze. And Fangburn is confused why Clooney would want this, but he sets off to get this done. They get a big fire burning in the ditch. And like waves of heat off of it. And Clooney stood in the ditch, uh, claws on hips, and he's cracking his tail. And he orders Scumnose and Mangefur to bring the Dormice prisoners. So the Dormice were still prisoners at this point. And he has the leader, Mouse Plumpin, tell him his name again. And he asks Plumpin, you know, who are these other, cap- the other mice to you? And he says, you know, they're his family, they're his mother and his father and his brothers and sisters and wife and his two little ones, and he begs Clooney to spare them. And Clooney laughs and asks Plumpin what he would do to save them. And he's kind of looking from the mice to the fire, meaningfully. And Plumpin is uh, begging him and saying he will do anything. Uh, what, What does Clooney want of him? anything to save his family and he says you're going to open the abbey door and if you fail it's your family that will pay the penalty and then he you know it's plumping to tell him what he has to do and um so the um the dormouse actually um, is put in on on a habit from one of the abbey creatures that had already been killed and was you know in the area of the uh, ditch and so Plumpin was wearing you know the habit of a deceased warrior and um he joins with the other laborers and goes unnoticed and uh when they called it quits plumpin you know rode up in a basket in spite of the i don't think that there were any dormice currently living at the abbey at that point but the habit must have it's covered a, it's a habit um, if it's probably, a hooded habit, it, you probably it, can't see the tail through it. It's right. Just another mouse working on the. Anyhow, um, yeah, Plumpin rode between Brother Alf and Brother Rufus, and across the meadow he could see Clooney watching, always watching. And he cursed what had put him and his family in the hands of the rats. Because, you know, these these are happy, friendly creatures at Redwall, and they're serving him tea, and he doesn't want to do this harm to them, but he doesn't want his family to be burned either. 
and after the tea is over, he wanders off on the, you know, pretending to be going off to do some kind of work. And he goes to the old gatehouse uh, den, which had been Methuselah's study, and he locks the door. So he's inside, and he lays down, lonely and miserable, waiting for nightfall. An inside cavern hall, the abbot is uh, making a speech to his captains to try to boost the morale. That it will not, it won't help Clooney much to put the abbey under siege because Red Wall is virtually self-supporting. It's got everything that needs for them to live pretty much indefinitely without having to leave the abbey grounds. So, so the abbot felt that they were just going to wait the red wallers and the out. rats would eventually leave. And um, they've got their own he, crops, they got fish, they got water, they're not gonna so, starve. So, he basically told them to carry on as normally as possible, and the walls will always be guarded. So, he left it to his captains to make sure you know there were guards at the walls. But they all seem to feel a little more relaxed about things. Um, now, Constance was not convinced. She whispered her thoughts to Basil and Jess. Never. Clooney must, won't leave us alone until either we are dead or he is. And Basil Stagg agrees, but says the abbot is... Um, a decent old buffer who believes this good in everyone, even Clooney. And Jess says she does too. She believes Clooney will be good someday, good and dead. Which, to be fair, I do think that that's the kind of quality that would make somebody a good abbot. I mean, maybe spiritually. Right. But... It doesn't do so good with when they're actually facing Clooney. So, the day was drawing to a close, and lights were dimmed at Red Wall as, you know, most of them prepared for a well-deserved night's rest, and the meadowlands and woods were quiet and peaceful. On top of the wall, the sentries leaned on the parapet, Listening to the evening bird songs and across the meadow, the enemy campfires burned low into the soft June night. Gee, I'm not sure I thought about too much about the months being mentioned. Oh, yeah, I don't think they mentioned too much. Some fantasy series have their own names for m- months. Yeah. Um, Lord of the Rings has it. Narnia has it. Redwall, I think, has the same as real life, but they mostly are counting by seasons. Right. Anyhow, uh, Plumpen, still hiding, is waits another hour, as Clooney had instructed, and then it was time to make his move, and he quietly snuck out of the gatehouse study, the dormouse headed north, staying well within the deep shadow of the wall 
At the small north wall gate, Plumplin drew a scarlet cloth from his habit. Smearing the bolts with grease from the cloth, he silently worked them loose. Why scarlet, do you think? So be seen. Because it's used as a signal in a moment. Um... Anyhow, Coconi lay watching the gate from behind a sycamore in the woods. And near every other entrance, one of Clooney's uh, most trusted soldiers was concealed, awaiting the signal. And the ferret was rewarded by the sight of the scarlet cloth being shoved through the door jam. He hurried away to tell Clooney. It was dead of night when Clooney's horde moved out of the meadow. Around the embers of each campfire, bundles of grass and twigs had been wrapped in blankets. This is to make it look like it's still... The bodies are still sitting around the fire. Yep. And the rats are trying to keep complete silence because if they make any noise and get noticed, um, Clooney is going to kill them. Right. They don't even have to worry about the mice. And Clooney is willing to wait. He gives it another uh, half hour until he can actually see some of the wall guards are starting to fall asleep at their posts. And once he thinks they're uh, nobody's alert, they go to the small wall door and it'll push and it's open and it's on grease hinges, so I think no noise from that either. And the few wall guards that are actually still awake are either watching the road or watching the camp where the bundles of sticks with blankets on them are. So n- nobody's looking at where Clooney and... Nobody's up there looking down into the abbey grounds. And Plumpin is standing by... Anxiously watching Clooney and you're thinking at least his family is would be safe now. Because he'd done his thing for Clooney. And Clooney must surely keep his word. And, but... Clooney Clumpin did uh, not see the look that passed between Clooney and Fangburn. And Fangburn brought his heavy club down on Plumpin's head and he was knocked out. Um, I suppose that's lucky he wasn't killed because oh. that could have killed him. I figured he had been killed with that. I I think he survived. Okay. Oh. Well, we'll see. And Clooney grinned wickedly in the dark and he had finally brought his horde into Redwall and with that cliffhanger we end chapter 10 now our next podcasting of this will be the final five well four chapters and uh prelude uh epilogue epilogue sorry epilogue and all but one of them are very short right So, anyhow, um, we'd love to hear from you. 
uh, follow and listen, uh, share it with your friends. Review yeah. us on Apple Podcast. Um, join our Cast It Into the Fire Podcast Facebook group. Um, we would love any f- any feedback or any suggestions of stuff you would like us to maybe cover in the future. Um, this Red Wall book will be done very soon, but there'll there'll be others. Although I think before we start the next one, we were trying going to cover a little more ground than we had before in Lord of the Rings, which uh, we've only done the prologue of that so far. Um, thinking of some plans of doing Narnia in the future, although I'm not exactly sure when. I'm on a reread of the whole series now. Um, but it's just been me. Uh, and I read the series as a teenager. Um, well, that's pretty much the most recently I read the complete series either. Well, I was a teenager quite a lot longer ago. Uh, thank you for listening to Cast It Into the Fire podcast. And have a good evening. See you next time. <laughs>